Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Welcome, Regenerates. In today's episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, I'm jamming with Jeff Emmett of Common Stack. Uh, Common Stack, for those of you who don't know about it, is, uh, is a project that is um, very exciting within the realm of crypto economics and the application of Eleanor Ostrom's work on commons management into the uh, sphere of distributed and decentralized governance and um, what they're calling cyber physical systems. So Jeff works closely with um, Griff and um, and Zargum, uh, Michael Zargum, who are the co-founders of the Common Stack, to develop a set of what are called primitives in the crypto space or sort of foundational building blocks to be able for um, small groups or large groups to create commons management systems. And uh, some of those may be market mechanisms and some of them may not be. So I had a great call learning a little bit more about Common Stack, and I really resonate with their approach and their vision. I'm excited to be able to bring this to you listeners. And... Um, I hope you're staying safe out there, and uh, please, um, yeah, please like the podcast on whatever venue you're listening on, whether it be iTunes or Spotify or uh, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to just like and uh, comment if if you'd like to ask any questions. I'll try to do better at, at checking into the various different venues. And of course, you can always reach out and connect with me on Telegram, um, the Regen Network Telegram group. I'm I'm active in, and uh, we also have a have a server on Discord, um, although that one's a little less active and. I would just love to interact with you if you're if you're um, loving the episodes or hating them, uh, <laughs> indifferent, whatever it might be that you're feeling. It's it's super helpful to get um, feedback and reflections from the community. So please do share if uh, if you're finding these meaningful. Um, enjoy. Um, today, I have the pleasure to welcome Jeff Emmett to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Welcome, Jeff, and thanks for, for calling. Um, for context for listeners, uh, Jeff is part of the, the founding and trusted seed of the Common Stack, which is a project that I'm an enormous uh, I, I'm enormously excited about it and a big fan of, and um, yeah, I'm just super excited to riff on cyber physical commons and conviction voting and um, planetary regeneration, uh, social regeneration, and uh, you know, I'm I'm excited about this call. So um, yeah, do you want to just maybe give a a quick introduction uh, to our listeners about you know. Um, you you and your vocation your work in the world and um and we can just kind of roll from there sure yeah um so uh the, the common stack came about uh kind of as, as an alliance between um giveth which is a, a blockchain kind of community uh 
blockchain for social good. Um, lots of different, uh, we call it the Giveth Galaxy. Uh, it's kind of a constellation of different projects. Um, there's a, a whole bunch that are out there that are affiliated with Giveth, like Ident3, Dapnode, um, uh, Swarm, Swarm City. Uh, there's, there's been a whole bunch of uh, kind of collaborations uh, with Giveth over the years. Um, and then recently, Block Science, which is one of the leading uh, firms in kind of the engineering design and modeling and simulation of complex adaptive systems of which uh, crypto networks are one as our biological networks um, and kind of pulling in the, the more rigorous engineering design uh, of these ecosystems. And from Giveth and Block Science, the common stack was born. Um, so we've been, um, so, so Griff uh, from Giveth and Michael Zargam from, from Block Science and myself uh, all came together and started looking at the, um, all the um, DAO instances and experiments going on in the space <clears throat> and the common stack is kind of a, a bit more lateral than vertical um, we're trying to learn from all of these different projects that are that are uh, uh, applying the web3 tools for <clears throat> new forms of social collaboration but then lifting kind of what's working in these systems into generalized patterns that can be um, kind of not necessarily standardized because there's no uh, one answer for governance. There's no one answer for funding, um, but at least kind of coming up with these reproducible patterns uh, that we can then uh, make more rigorous through token engineering design and simulation and provide kind of a toolkit for communities uh, so that we don't all have to solve the same problems. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the experimentation uh, in the crypto space, and there's been a lot and it's been wonderful, um, but a lot of people are, are uh, trying to solve the same thing. So we're looking to kind of yeah. create reproducible patterns uh, that communities can just kind of take with and run um, without having to, to breadboard everything. We want to create the printed circuit boards uh, of these kinds of, uh, of social collaboration augmented by technology. Um, and also one, one part that we've noticed early in our journey is that this is inherently social, uh, that this is not just code is law, um, here's a technical solution, and therefore, you know, the problem is solved. Um, humans are complex, humans are messy, um, you know, and, and governance is always evolving. It's not really um, a one-shot game theory solution. They're complex adaptive systems that evolve over time. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to bring a bit of the, um, the discourse in that direction. What are the technical components, but what are also the, the social components that lead to healthy institutions and how we can uh, collectively build a, a better future for ourselves? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot there. I, I think one of the things yeah. that I resonate with the most and um, am, am most, most appreciative of the, the way in which Common Stack is kind of like bringing this to the crypto community, you know, most, most centered in the Ethereum world, but I think it, it's broader than that as well. I noticed some people from, you know, the EOS world, obviously there's a strong overlap with the Cosmos ecosystem. So I think it's, it's sort of like across many different ecosystems uh, in the larger community. Is this shift towards an understanding of, of complex, um, evolving systems and, and distributed computing and consensus and you know web3 broadly and blockchain specifically as a tool for social coordination not as a um sort of deterministic you know not it's like there's a it's really heartening i mean that was something i i came you know from as, as someone with uh my technical and scientific background is in um 
agriculture and landscape ecology, not in uh, software. And so I always, you know, when from coming from that perspective, which is rich with sort of complexity science and, um, you know, probable, like it's all probabilistic science. And, you know, and I also did a lot of work in the, on the social side, sort of the human ecology side of things. And so when I came into the crypto space with the desire and, and the sort of founding vision around region network, I found it completely insane <laughs> the way that people, most people were approaching governance. And I'm just super invigorated and excited about where it feels like even Vitalik, like, like the, there's certain like things have resonated out. And I think, you know, I think common stack is sort of like at the, um, is like at the vanguard of this, but it feels like there's a coming of age in the broader uh, crypto space around the role of, of sort of uh, computer augmented governance and sense making and the, the role of sort of consensus and these technological tools to make humans better at, coordinating around complex issues and i'm just super appreciative of the framing i, I constantly am looking in the tom common stack channel and and your writings and and michael's writings and, and griff's writings and just appreciative of like a new like like level up around terminology and the way that the discernment around um how we're yeah doing computer-aided governance you know, like getting to choose how um, augment and, and aim for social coordination. So yeah. kudos to that. That's very exciting. Um, I'd love, I'd love if you just take us on a quick walk through uh, a couple of the core concepts. Like um, usually I don't necessarily, like oftentimes in, in these podcasts, as my listeners will know, I sort of dive straight for sort of like the, the philosophical, ethical, and, and practical underpinnings of things happening. But in this case, I actually, because I'm not sure how broadly distributed common stack awareness is, um, I actually want to just sort of like take a step back and, and have you, maybe we just only spend 10 or 15 minutes on this, but sort of like outline a few of the most exciting component parts that you guys are working on. And like, you know, like conviction voting, uh, uh, bo augmented bonding curves, like a few of these key components that are like, wow, these are transformative and exciting. Where did they come from? You know, how is it, how is it going? You know, what are they going to be used for? What are the applications? That I think would be really uh, be great for me to hear. Um, and I think it might be more broadly useful for the community as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm just loading up a, a couple diagrams on my other screen. Maybe I can share when they're when they're loaded. Um, but okay. basically, the as I as I mentioned, the the common stack kind of came about through collaborations um, between Giveth and and Block Science. And Block Science, um, the Michael Zargam has been uh, you know studying a lot of um, coordination mechanisms in um, swarm robotics in multi-agent. Uh, coordination problems is like a um, optimization field in controls engineering. So if you're, for example, sending out, um, you know, a hundred drones to cover two kilometers squared of, of with Wi-Fi, um, you know, how do you, how do those drones coordinate um, amongst each other? How to, you know, they have to sense the situation, they have to communicate with each other, and then they have to act on those, um, you know, um, sensed uh, parameters to to deliver on the goal that they are 
uh, optimized to do. So there's there's a lot of Wi-Fi. existing. Um, you know how do you, how do those drones? Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, conviction voting. Conviction voting is really interesting because it's um, basically using some of the new affordances of of blockchain, and that is that we have this rich temporal data stream um, to rethink some of our traditional uh, methods of governance. So voting, um, you know, we traditionally come together, you know, once every four years or once every council meeting and we say yes or no. It's a very binary uh, time, like ad hoc voting. So you you call a vote, you get the vote, and then you don't think about it for another little while. Um, but with, with blockchains, we actually have the opportunity to think beyond that um, and, and introduce a temporal aspect into decision making so that we can kind of create this collective human organism um, and, and mimic some of the decision-making processes we find in nature. Uh, so if we take the human brain, for example, you have neurons that are uh, growing in action potential until they hit a, a threshold and then they fire. Um, so this is basically what we're trying to model with conviction voting. So if we hold tokens and we exert those tokens towards a, a preference like um, I think Gregory should be part of this group. You can also assert your tokens towards that. And these tokens grow in conviction, which is why it's called conviction voting, until they reach a certain threshold uh, and they fire. So this is kind of a um, rethinking the potential for using blockchain in collective governance mechanisms. Um, and, that's, and that's one example. Actually, since we've put that out, um, the OneHive team, which is a, a dev team associated in the Aragon universe, um, has been working on conviction voting. And they've actually already come up with several different uh, use cases for it, one of those being conviction funding. Um, so how do you allocate um, you know, a, a communal pool of money to various proposals, which was one of our uh, – actually, we called that conviction voting. It's now kind of become conviction funding. Um, there's also um, – dynamic average consensus. So in a, I suppose it depends what layer we're kind of talking on. In a technical community, you may have certain parameters that need to be agreed on. In you know, a, a more high-level community, it might be something like, you know, what tax rate is fair or what, what rate of UBI should we all be receiving? And you can actually have everyone kind of feeding their uh, vote stream into that. Instead of a vote at a specific amount of uh, point in time, it's you're streaming your preference. And that, that preference is aggregated among everyone in that community. So you get a, a continuous signal of what they um, you know, may prefer regarding any, any parameter you could, you could set in a community. Um, now, of course, that's presuming a few other things. You know, there are limitations to direct democracy. Um, as opposed to liquid democracy. So I, I think we're still quite early in the um, experimentation of these, of these uh, ecosystems um, to you know, think of them being applied to real-world topics. But this is also why we're, we're starting very small with um, small coordinated communities and seeing how these novel governance um, tools can be, can be useful to making decisions as a collective. Yeah, cool. Well, so um, one question I had, uh, and I think this has come up in the common stack chat um, at least once that i've seen is around um conviction voting for instance um i mean in some ways as, as a mechanism design it's meant to make it a little bit better make voting or maybe a lot better when you for anonymous communities of token holders where you could have um different token holders whales 
sort of like exerting undue influence that actually is counter to the the common good um, and instead is extracting more value for 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 themselves um, and there's a way in which conviction voting kind of um, ameliorates that a little bit but it doesn't necessarily go all the way in in the way that a, a system that uses some sort of identity does so could you right. just talk a little bit about the tension there and what you're seeing and what's evolving and how people are conceptualizing that for sure yeah so uh, the the immediate application of of conviction voting i guess i was talking a little bit more about uh applications down the road the immediate application uh -huh. of conviction voting is is trying to address the um last-minute vote swings that we see in some of the Aragon uh, um, vote processes. So there, I mean, you you still have a very small percentage of token holders ultimately voting. So I think around 3%, 4%. Um, and in one of the AGP processes, you saw, um, you know, there was a consensus, either yes or no, on a certain proposal up until 10 minutes before the vote uh, finished and a whale came in and just and exerted you know, a massive uh, influence in one direction and switched it from no to yes or yes to no. Um, and we see this as, you know, plutocratic control of democratic processes, which is, uh, which is a problem. Um, so conviction voting, what it does is it um, limits the ability for a whale to come in at the last minute and exert that preference because it introduces uh, time as a, as a component. So if there is a minority that has voted uh, all the all the way along for a certain for a yes or no, then that is growing in conviction. And if a whale comes in, even if they hold you know a dominant uh, token vote uh, amount of tokens, their tokens aren't worth as much as a minority if they come in at the last minute. Now, as you mentioned, this doesn't uh, completely eliminate the plutocratic attack vector because if a whale and a minnow vote at the same time, of course, the whale has um, more impact vote uh, because both of their votes are um, growing in conviction over time. Um, however, another important part of the common stack is interoperability and modularity. So we see conviction voting and quadratic voting fitting together quite nicely. So you could have a temporal aspect, um, but also quadratic voting basically uh, attempts to balance out the power between majority holders and minority holders. Mm -hmm. It's more or less a, a, tacit, a tacit agreement of the rich to subsidize the, the minority because they value those people and don't want them to just leave because they have no power, um, which, you know, exit is kind of the, the um, rallying cry of the crypto space and, and the libertarian, I guess, bent in general. Um, but quadratic voting we see as kind of um, helping to balance that between uh, whales and minnows and conviction voting can also help in giving the people who have been around longer more voice um, than the people who are coming in last minute and trying to influence things uh, that, that the community may not agree with. Got it. So the, yeah, the, the composition of these tools is really important. And we, we see um, a lot of amazing experiments in, in, the, in the crypto space, um, but it seems like people are focusing more on individual mechanisms than on composition of mechanisms. So mechanisms yeah, such as no, holographic. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And yeah, right. like one, one of my fa favorite uh, tools is uh, holographic consensus uh, by, by DAOstack. I think this is fantastic. It's kind of using the, 
um, prediction um, wisdom, the wisdom of the crowd to predict what, what will be, you know, more useful or, or less. But I see that as, as part of a, you know, I think that would be really useful for a, a proposal backlog system, where if you have, you know, a thousand proposals on the table and you have a community of a hundred people, no one has the time to read through a thousand proposals and see, you know, are all of these worthwhile? You could have, you know, holographic consensus choose the top 20 out of those thousand, for example. Um, and then you could use um, the giveth proposal engine. Actually, I have the diagram up here now. Maybe I'll um, share my screen share my screen quickly. Um, can you see that diagram that I'm pointing to here? Yeah. Yep. Okay, perfect. Um, so, so yeah, this is the, uh, the whole cyber physical commons uh, system. Um, so if you can think of everything within this box is kind of within the local economy of the augmented bonding curve. So we're creating almost like a, a cell, if you can think of, think of it that way. Outside of this box is the external economy. Inside of this box is the internal economy. Um, and there's a lot of uh, interesting parallels here that, you know, the, uh, I read an article not, not too long back where they were saying the, um, the, the beginning of life, the beginning of single-celled organisms came with the, the cell wall. As soon as there was a cell wall, it created, um, you know, a, a membrane that kept resources within that as opposed to the resources without that. And then you could, you know, you had things like mitochondria, you had other, other things forming within the cell wall. And this was the, the beginning of life. This is a viable system. Um, so this mm -hmm. is kind of the same structure here is that we now have in the, in the bonding curve, in the creation of uh, uh, an internal economy versus the external economy, you now have... Um, the, the potential for circular economies, more efficient flows of information uh, within these economies that can now produce um, kind of uh, similar to the um, um, Ronald Coase, um, the structure of the firm. Um, you know, there's, there's boundaries around a company that promote, um, you know, increased flows of communication and value within that firm. This is kind of the same thing, but now for uh, a decentralized community. Um, so you can see, I won't, I won't go through all of this because there's uh, quite a bit to digest here, but there are different ways for value to flow into and out of this economy. Um, some of those are financial. So you have people contributing capital uh, by buying tokens. Um, you also have people earning tokens uh, through completing work. Um, so those tokens uh, that, are, that are purchased are then exerted through conviction voting. So there are a number of proposals that are on the table. When any of those proposals uh, get uh, aggregate an appropriate amount of conviction, they, they are triggered, they begin, uh, then work is carried out. Um, funds are distributed to the people who carry out that work. Work is complete and value is delivered that value may have additional revenue feeding back into this community. So you're kind of creating a, a biological system for community uh, production of value uh, and, and primarily around public goods, which is where we see um, a lot of the traditional uh, business models um, failing to, to produce viable uh, public goods. Um, and I think that's where there's, there's some really uh, big opportunity for um, alternative economic models. There aren't, there aren't good business models to provide uh, sustainable public goods, but maybe we can create economic models. We can realign incentives uh, so that there is, um, you know, the, the production of value for everyone involved without the extraction um, that we see so often in our, in our um, capitalist uh, economic systems. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing that I I sort of think about a lot um, is that at the moment, what we're, I mean, and the devil's in the details, but what you're outlining there, I would say, is something like the transformation of public goods into common goods. Right. Right. Yeah. Where, where, because you are, you're, you're sort of like, you're able to govern and account for and have a discrete number of people who are governed, you know, and obviously, um, Eleanor Ostrom did an amazing job about, uh, sort of like outlining principles of successful common governance aggregated from examples all around the world. And, and that, that translation, instead of trying to privatize goods or, you know, um, you can sort of commonize goods, if that makes sense. And, and therefore, you can, you can create common good outcomes in a way that is, you know, neither sort of state mandated, um, which is traditionally the way that public goods are stewarded is through some sort of, you know, state taxation mechanism, et cetera, which in our today's day and age, I mean, obviously, a, a lot of this is influenced um, by sort of like a, a voluntaristic sort of libertarian bent of like, well, you know, we need to figure out on our own how to sort of self-regulate. And um, so, so, it, so that now maybe bridging into the philosophical, that's one of the things I find most interesting, actually, is that the sort of like the, that techno libertarianism is sort of like has encountered and is falling a love in love with the commons and in the commons has has traditionally been the domain of sort of like the you know i don't know anarcho greens or the you know the, the sort of like the the communities that wouldn't necessarily um conventionally want anything to do with markets necessarily right. or or would be very wary of market mechanisms as a way of achieving sort of common good outcomes right um exactly. so so tell me a little bit how does that how does that observation strike you and and you know on that sort of philosophical you know socio-political spectrum what are you observing around who's resonating with this work at the intersection of markets commons and crypto technology crypto networks yeah it's it's a extremely interesting area because i think some of the new affordances of of blockchains and web3 tech in general blurs a lot of the traditional uh, lines that we or that some people i mean it really depends who you're speaking to. I think one of our biggest difficulties has been translation. Um, you know, a word that that resonates with one group is antithetical to another one. You know, there's words mm -hmm. like uh, profit when you're speaking in terms of a market. People are like, oh, okay, profit means you are, um, you know, providing a service that people find useful. When you say that in a in a, um, a commons um, conversation, it's uh, it screams of exploitation and um, externalization of, of damage and, and so on and so forth. So there's, uh, it's really tricky to kind of figure out the, the language that works uh, with these groups. But I think what we are seeing is a, um, a tighter coupling between markets and governance. Right now we have, you know, governance is imposed mm -hmm. after the fact. 
you have uh, governments step in and say, well, okay, if you polluted, you have to pay this carbon tax. But there's all sorts of uh, kind of bl blurring of the lines and a lot of gray area in between like the profit that's made, uh, the externalization of damage, and then the tax that's imposed after them and bridging building the governance into building the, the governance into the market and internalizing the externality. Um, and I'm not saying that's, um, you know, it, uh, a priori what these systems are about, but I think we have the potential to do that uh, with this technology. Um, uh, sorry, did you have a yeah. follow on from that? Well, no, I think that's, I, I, I see that as well. I, I think it's well said too, that it's not, we can't take it for granted that they'll that these sorts of systems will just intrinsically um, internalize previously externalized costs, uh, but they do offer building blocks that that may make that process um, much easier. Which I think right. is, that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited. I, I mean, that's sort of in a nutshell what. Region Network is even aiming a little bit beyond that. We're not just trying to internalize previously externalized costs. We're trying to create positive externalities or those yeah. common or public goods through the through business, through the way that things relationships are happening. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to me. I mean, I, I certainly um, come from a worldview in which. Um, I can very much understand the perspective. I can understand both perspectives, but I can really understand the perspective in which we can understand by and large profit in, in today's economy is, is strongly correlated with, if not nearly exactly the same as the, the value being extracted from living systems, whether they be, cultural or biological um you know that that is you know basically that that's the that's the margin know, that's that's the margin yeah. um by and large i mean there are there are always exceptions but that's i think a pretty decent rule of thumb so you know i think it's exciting to to be working towards ways that the that, that we can re-internalize those costs because i i i do think I'm hopeful that that Common Stack and some of the other more hopeful projects in the crypto sphere are are sort of harbingers of a world in which the um, markets and successful competition in, in markets is around um, it, like the competition is how well you're serving health and how well you're producing quality and novelty and um, serve, serving in a way that cares for the stakeholders that you're engaged with instead of how well are you able to externalize costs and, you know, um, disenfranchise and, you know, fragment the stakeholders and community that you're engaged with. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's there's a lot to learn from existing systems. And we see in, in capitalism the and and evolution in general, um, there's a lot of emphasis on on competition. You know, the the 
it's good to have competition in a, in a market, multiple companies that are trying to uh, provide the same service because that competition will make them, you know, provide better services for lower costs, which is better, better for the consumer. Um, and I think what we're verging on now is having competition between currencies, which is actually something uh, that, that Hayek touched on. And I don't think it's, it's, as well known, at least not to myself before before coming across it, was that right mm-hmm. now we we have currency monocultures, uh, and in mm-hmm. agriculture, you know, it's it's well recognized how dangerous monocultures are because they're they increase the the brittleness of your system. You know, if there's drought or there's a pest, you know, in a monoculture you lose a whole crop. Versus permaculture, um, you have diversity, you have resilience, um, and right now we have a monoculture of currencies around the world. Um, and basically all generated almost the same way, state-backed, interest-based, um, and so on and so on. Um, and now we're seeing uh, a renaissance of currency creation. Um, and now having different currency systems being able to compete to provide services and provide um, incentives for different things. And again, that can go in every direction. I think 99.9% of what we see out there is still an experiment. Um, but as we continue to evolve through this uh, process of figuring out how we design these and, and discovering these repeatable tools and patterns that can be used, uh, we can get better and better at creating alternative economic models to provide um, common goods or, or turning public goods into common goods so that they can be uh, useful, but at the same time uh, sustained economically um, and, and really start to see um, a new um, a new paradigm of, of providing these services for ourselves because we can include stakeholders that are traditionally left out, you know, in, in uh, the economic models of today through tokenization. Yeah. Say more, say more about that because I think that's maybe something that um, let's see if we can cross that bridge from assumptions that I share, but I think are sort of like, latent and not well explicated they're, they're sort of like embedded in they're embedded in sort of like the crypto um sphere and insiders of the crypto world this is driven this sort of competition between currencies and tokenization are sort of fundamental pillars of how uh we assume the world is going to um, transform um but i don't think that people outside of that very insular community um have a sense of that and they probably i mean i mean i think it's true to it's 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 yeah it's true that we we can see what happened in 2017 and and you know the beginning of 2018 and the ico boom and sort of the wild west uh you know almost like wildcat banking all over again you know playing out all over the world um i think people when they think of tokenization now a a lot of people are going to just sort of like think oh okay so you're sort of like minting money out of nothing and getting people to believe in it sort of like the and again it's like this too has happened before just like the beginning of the stock markets people were creating joint stock companies that were doing nothing and doing big campaigns to raise money and whatnot so it's sort of like okay we've gone in these cycles so so taking a historical perspective you know where are we now and and how can we defend and invite um, the understanding that tokenization and competition between currencies um, is inevitable, A, let's defend, let's, let's dig into that and defend it a little bit. And, and where are we at in the cycle and what do we need to be thinking about right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 
I think crypto as as a whole and tokenization is still uh, very much so like attributed to to Bitcoin. Like when people hear about blockchain, they think Bitcoin, um, and they like this whole um, get rich quick mentality still surrounds a lot of the space. And and I mean, I think that that's quite un- unfortunate. But I think still most of the experiments we see are just kind of replications along that same same meme. And I think the introduction of token engineering, which which is kind of uh, being pioneered by by block science and and brought into the crypto space uh, through the common stack. And I mean, a number of other uh, projects are, are very interested in um, kind of this more rigorous formalization of tools. Um, and that comes uh, first and foremost with CAD-CAD. Um, which is the simulation and, and modeling tool that was released by Block Science um, just just about a year ago now, um, and that's where we can start to uh, simulate and model and have a better understanding of the full range of of um, scenarios that could play out in these ecosystems. I think there's still a lot of mistrust around these currencies and uh, trust is trust is the core component of a currency. If you don't have trust in it, then people won't use it. Um, and then it really defeats the, the whole purpose. So I think once we can build up, um, you know, the, the technology and the foundation, the mathematical and engineering foundations of these and show that there's a real world use case out there, um, and I, I think that also is is a process. There are some really um, interesting projects and initiatives that are that are going on now. Um, one of which being the uh, the Red Cross Community Inclusion Currencies project in Kenya, uh, which which Block Science is contracting to to build the the model and the simulations of this system. Um, and then once we once we give it a use case that people can identify with and and see a need for, um, I think that that it will become much more. Uh, apparent as to how these can can play out in the real world. Um, and I think COVID actually gives us a really good opportunity to to speak about some of those opportunities. I've actually been reached out by a couple of communities in Canada who want to launch a local currency uh, because they see yep. the, the issue of, you know, now I can't go to work, my neighbors can't go to work, but we have to exchange and I still have goods or, or time, you know, labor, but there's no, there's no money to facilitate that exchange. Um, as soon as we have a, a use case and a product that people can use, um, you know, I, I think this stuff will just flow much more. But I think we're still, we're still designing transistors. We're still designing mechanisms in, in most of the blockchain space today. We're designing capacitors and resistors and inductors. You know, people don't want capacitors, resistors and inductors. They want a computer. As soon as you yeah. can combine those components in a way that is useful to someone, it will it will take off. You know, the internet was around since the seventies, but no one really used it other than the super nerds until the nineties when there was a browser and email. But there was two decades of development of internet technologies that, you know, most people looked at it and they were like, What? I don't get it. Like TCPIP and packet switching and like what? Why? But as soon as you give them, you know, a, a repository of global data that is accessible through this interface, it's it's a no brainer. Um, but I think we have to get the technology to that level. And it's, and it's about um, building on those layers of abstraction. We don't just need, you know, gates. We don't just need um, uh, chips. We need, we need a product that is built on the modular com- composition of all of these tools uh, to provide something useful to the end user. And I, and I think that will come about through improving and iterating those, those engineering models as we go. Yeah, definitely. Um... Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, and and you know you need you need sort of visions of the completed system 
and, and little tastes of it to sort of drive, you know, adoption and demand and excitement. It's interesting. I, I was reached out to by some of um, some folks that I'm closely connected to in in Ecuador, where um, you know there's a local seed saving and food network, and um, and they have this you know big coronavirus induced capital crunch um, economic crisis that I think most parts of the world are facing as well. Although there, I think it's more acute because they were already in a big crisis from sort of a petroleum mm -hmm. induced, you know, and, and, and foreign debt induced crisis. So they were already in a downward spiral and then it got worse. Um, and you know, we were talking, I was talking with them about some sort of mutual credit, you know, um, local currency, you know, uh, where people who are producers and consumers in a local supply network could exchange. And I have to be honest, I sort of like did a quick search and, and chatted with some people and none of the tools in the crypto space were even, I would, I would, I was just like, nothing's, nothing's anywhere close. And, but there's like a Drupal, there's like an old Drupal mutual credit yeah. system. I was like, yeah. Exactly. I was just like, just use that. Like, yeah. you know, some there's a small enough community, like have an ad assist admin that everybody trusts and just do that. And don't like, it's just sort of like, there are tools out there. Just do use what, use what makes sense. I don't know that it actually, like, there's also with those sort of mutual credit systems, there's a critical mass. You need a critical mass of people, right. you know, it needs to be, you know, a, 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 I don't know what the, the threshold is, but it's, you know, it's probably more than a thousand users. That's actually, that's one of the things I want to uh, do some test uh, testing on the model that we've developed with with the Red Cross is to de determine what is the minimum economy size to achieve that that critical mass uh, that you can that you can create these internal um, circular effects within an economy. Um, and and, and, and what's the usage yeah. ratio too? Because right. I live in this I live in this small town, Great Barrington. Um, Schumacher um, Center for a New Economy is nice. you know down the road. Um, they um, and some of my friends, you know, working working there, created the Berkshire, which was um, an early uh, local complementary currency. You know, most businesses take them. The bank, you know, the bank takes them. The co-op, you know, all the local businesses on Main Street and everything. But I have to say, nobody uses them. And I, I've been meaning to call up Schumacher and be like, do you guys have numbers? Do you have data? Can you tell? Did it change during the crisis? What's going on here? But even me, I, I love the concept and I love the idea, but it was just like not, it, for, for whatever reason, there's like a separation between the idea and the intention and the reality that everybody was living. And part of that is because essentially the Berkshire, the incentive's wrong because the, the store owner actually gets some, it's like 90 cents on the dollar or something. It's 90 like, or 95, yeah. Yeah. And so, the, you know, they're kind of like doing it. They're getting taxed, yeah, basically. Yeah. And they're all struggling. And so they're all kind of like, not. they're not going to encourage right. the They'll use of the it. Berkshire necessarily. They'll take it. Yeah. I, I actually just listened to a, a podcast on that with David uh, Bollier and I think her name was Moriarty uh, with, with Berkshires. And she said, you know, this is a physical cash system. We actually don't have data on it. 
uh, we, we yeah. prefer anecdotes and like they, they have all sorts of anecdotes, you know, it helped this business do this, it helped this uh, consumer do this, but they don't have the data. And I think the data is so critical. Um, and actually, I think Grassroots Economics has one of the best uh, dashboards. Um, actually, maybe I can, can pull it up here. Um, I mean, it's still, it's, um, you know, generation one of this kind of data. Um, but let me show you. Have you seen these? Really quickly. Oops. Uh, uh, what is that? I've seen the bill. I can't read the writing. I'll show you after you, like, show me this and then I'll show you this. Show sure. You. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is in from what I've seen, one of the most in-depth um, data dashboards of a of a local currency system. Um, and again, a, a, a caveat here: this is a, a centralized system. And I think when we when we look at you know launching crypto pro, uh, communities or crypto tokens into real-world applications, especially as um, you know involving. Uh, marginalized communities this is in rural kenya so we have to be very careful about you know doing this on a completely decentralized network what are the attack vectors how is how could this be you know um taken over by you know mischievous actors so this is a, a centralized implementation um it's run by grassroots economics so i mean if you're a crypto purist you may say this isn't like why even use a blockchain um but really we can start to uh, progressively decentralize these systems as the technology becomes better and better and you know we, we come across you know established consensus mechanisms that make sense um, but I think the the real power in using blockchain is the uh, the opportunity to leverage massive amounts of data um, and see you know the the amount of trade um, you know you can break it down by by gender and again of course data sensitivity but we can see that um, you know this this benefits uh, female uh, currency holders in Kenya. Um, and I mean, they're generally the ones that are uh, trading in these circumstances. The men are often, you know, out of the village and, and working somewhere. Um, but you can see, you know, the number of transactions that occur. Um, they have this is all done on cell phones. Is that, is that correct? It's like a yeah. it's like cell phone based credit system. Exactly. Yeah. So it's very similar to M-Pesa. So it's on feature phones. So like, you know, you hit star 611 and it gives you a menu and I say one send money. Uh, enter the phone number. I put in your phone number, uh, and it transfers the money via um, via feature phones. Or, I mean, you can also do it smartphone enabled. Um, but they've started with uh, with the kind of M-Pesa feature phone model. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's there's um, tons to see here. And actually, the the most important part in my mind is um, you have uh, the amount of of uh, value in transaction. So we have. Um, 22.4 million Kenyan shillings in trade, uh, basically off of 1.62 million shillings. And so a shilling is about uh, a penny. So you can 100 shillings to a dollar. So if you divide all these numbers by 100, you're basically at the US dollar. So we've got, you know, 22.4 million uh, shilling in trade based off of 1.62 million shilling in support by the Red Cross. So in other words, you have a 20x, almost 20x leverage um, in every Red Cross aid dollar that's sent to these communities. Um, so this is I, Will's project, that's yeah, correct? This is exactly, Will yeah. yeah. Will Reddick, yeah. Cool. Um, so I think, I think this kind of dashboarding is, is one of the really big uh, 
potentials for local currencies because all of a sudden you can say to the Red Cross, because worldwide uh, cash voucher assistance is the, is the gold standard for aid these days. They don't, you know, back in the day they used to send canned food or they would send medicine or they would send clothes and they realized what they were actually doing is decimating the local uh, economy for for those products. So now they they generally send cash. If there's a community in Kenya that has suffered uh, an extended period of drought, they just give everyone some money, and that money can be spent in the local economy and and stimulate the local economy for uh, you know more more benefit to the community members. But giving one dollar in uh, worth of Kenyan shillings is a one for one um, you know impact ratio. If you then turn that dollar into um, actually, they have a, a 4x leverage, so they give them, uh, for every Red Cross aid dollar, they create $4 worth of uh, sarafu, which actually just means currency in, in uh, Swahili, but that is the, the local currency. Um, and then as long as that um, circulates locally, so they see about a 5x uh, velocity of money improvement with, with a local currency versus, uh, versus a national currency. So that 4x on currency creation plus 5x local velocity of money equates to about a 20x leverage uh, for every aid dollar that's sent to, to this Kenyan village. Um, so yeah, no, it's cool. It's, it's exciting to see that. the numbers. It's exciting to see the numbers. And it's sort of like many years ago, I was kind of like m more integrated in the local currency scene. And um, I mean, I, yeah, I'm just excited to see. Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting topic. It's, really fascinating what i was going to show you here was um some of my um crypto friends uh created this i don't know if you've seen the kong buck i have yeah cool so this is physical currency with a little chip right here check that out and it's nice. uh secure execution it's a it's linked to an ethereum address and you can back it with cryptocurrency and you can have anonymous cash-based trade. Cool. Um, uh, which I think is pretty, like, pretty interesting in terms of just the intersection of, you know, the crypto sphere potentially local. So if you thought, like, okay, members of the Ethereum community, you could use this in order to support communities around the world and have die-backed local currencies. Um, with a, some sort of decentralized banking system, you know, I, it's going to happen one way or the other, but it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's cool. It's exciting. Whether it happens in a way that is actually governed, maybe, you know, I mean, I, I, luckily I don't have any interest in die. I, I find the maker governance to be totally, I can't, I, I'm beyond me. However, but why everybody uses die, but whatever, you know, people, you can do your own thing. Um, yeah. it's useful. It works. That's great. That's all you need to know. In my mind, the difference between die and tether is like nothing. I can't yeah. discern any real difference in terms of, uh, rigor of, and reality of governance. But, um, now that I've thrown them under the bus, we can, <laughs> we can move on. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think all of these are, again, like great, great experiments. Um, I think yeah. all, all of the crypto space up until this point has been a big um, R&D testbed. Um, and, and totally. That's and that's to the say, right framing. Yeah. yeah. Don't let me be a hater. It's true. No, 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 it's not at all. Really fantastic. <laughs> They're really fantastic experiments. And we're learning a lot. I'm excited. I love 
that, you know, you know, and I'm sort of like in the crypto space, I'm kind of like heretical in the fact that I never wanted to really participate so much in the Ethereum community, <laughs> but I love it. But I love it. I like love the avant-garde experimental, like build stuff and whatever. But I always looked at the, the building blocks and just like the way everything was. And I was like, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And I, and I think, you know, there's, there's all sorts of um, progress being made in the Cosmos ecosystem. And actually I've been blown away by your team and, and your team's contributions in the, in the Cosmos ecosystem and um, definitely the, the technical knowledge and, and also philosophical and, and um, you know, obvious uh, a desire for regeneration and sustainability uh, of your team to be incredibly inspiring. And I think it's, it's been great to see Thank you. The, the progress. No, I mean, here. I think we're, we're kind of crazy. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, how we ended up, you know, essentially becoming a layer one, like a layer one player um, is a little bit beyond me in a way. You know, I think <laughs> I was thinking about, I was thinking about this earlier today. I think it's just as a team, our ethos is just sort of like, if you've got to take out the trash, you just have to take out the trash. Like, yeah, just... <laughs> You know, we, we sort of, we had a set of assumptions about good governance and, and, and what you were talking about earlier really resonated. If you're going to create a currency, people have to trust it. If people are going to trust it, then it has to have integrity. And if it's going to have integrity, then you need to be really immaculate and transparent and have the right governance feedback loops around the very most basic infrastructure of things, Right. And that's where we were like, well, then we got to go all the way to layer one. We have to go all the way to the building blocks. And the only thing that makes sense is like self-sovereign systems that the users ultimately can go all the way down and they can change something when it doesn't work or, you know, it's creating a perverse incentive or something's not aligned. There has to be a way for that to happen from the beginning. And so we started with that assumption and, you know, Cosmos was by you know it's like the early was like the early uh, you know leader in in seeing that and trying to create you know the tools so that people who had that realization could spin up their own sort of sovereign state machines and create their own modules and their own governance and their own things and so you know and and i just love the the community there is really great in a lot of ways. And we just sort of like rolled our sleeves up and we just started like, we were just, we sort of synced up where everything was actually at. You know, like, we're just like, here's, here we are. Oh, we have to solve, we have to solve that before we can do the next thing. And yeah. it's, you know, um, and it's been great. And I'm super grateful and excited about that community. Actually. I think there's a bunch of progress being made i'm excited i'm also excited to see polka dot come up online and see what happens there with that mm. just sort of different different model different worldview um solving similar problems i'm really excited for eth 2.0 um and and i'm really excited what i'm most excited about is getting to the composability where mm. you know like we can create um composable like we can pull something from common stack and we can just deploy it you can just deploy it over here and what matters is the governance it doesn't matter which tech stack you used or what the code was what matters is that it's you know open that it's composable that it's modular that you know the governance is in the right place and people have choice so the community of users can choose 
we want our currency to have the following attributes. We want to tax ourselves in the following ways. We want to, you know, um, compete on the following things. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's the, you know, sort of magic, magic moment, right? For, um, for the competition of magic internet money. Right. Yeah, <laughs> against, definitely. Against, you know, state, against state um, issued sort of military backed currencies. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and I, I mean, a Regen Network is definitely one of those, those projects that has such an appeal to non-crypto people, you know, realigning incentives around uh, regenerative agriculture and, and, and um, agricultural systems. Like that's just such a, a clear need uh, that so many people get behind. But then, you know, digging into it further, and I saw the depth that your team goes into with the, with the technical build. And I mean, it's wonderful that you guys have that, that those technical chops to dig into that group, to, to that layer. But I feel like there are so many other regen network, um, you know, uh, people who want to start a regen network, but they don't have the ability to, to drill down to that. So I, I'm excited for when the technology can come up to exactly. you know, just facilitating people in, in doing these things rather than having to get involved in, in building it from scratch. <laughs> I'm very, I, I resonate with that. I really, you know, I, I was thinking about that also earlier today. I was like, man, I wonder what would have happened if I had as a, you know, as a sort of technological neophyte and even skeptic, if I had, you know, had this vision that was calling me in five years and in, instead of, you know, three years ago or whatever, <laughs> what would, what would, what will the building blocks be and how long would it take to just do it? Like just to be like, Oh yeah, you can throw that in. You can throw that together. These people already have that going. You just connect it and you, you know, put it all together. And then all of a sudden, you know, whatever, a month later and, and with 10, 10,000 boxers on thing, you, you sort of get yeah. to the same place. Whereas, you know, right now we're just sort of like, wow, got to slog through and build that piece and that piece. They don't exist. They just don't exist. There's no way yeah. to do those things. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing though, I, I, I'd love your opinion on this. I've been thinking a lot recently about the radical difference in um, organizational style, focus, and just start up life between like a crypto project uh, and an old web 2.0 sort of like um, move fast and break things, you know, lean uh, sort of software play. And the, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts, if that's something you think about a lot. Like what does the crypto world have to learn from that space? And where is the model just totally different? And, you know, it's actually a different game with different rules and a different reality in which things will just look very different. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it, um, at least in my experience, um, starting, you know, being with uh, the common stack from the get go, looking for funding options, you know, moving forward with this, a lot of the um, grants that we've applied to, you know, we've, we've explored VC funding. Um, a lot of uh, the time we, we seem to get shoehorned into like the startup mentality and like, what is your, yeah. um, you know, product, product market fit? What is your, uh, you know, your, your revenue model? Like, how are you going to, you know, uh, turn this into a product? And a lot of the time we're like, well, we don't, we don't actually want to do those things. We're not trying to capture value produced 
by this thing, which is, I mean, what investors are typically looking for. You know, if you're looking at the startup Web 2.0 VC model, they're looking to, you know, uh, fund an early initiative and then cash out huge when when it either you know exit when the founder exits or it goes to IPO or whatnot. Um, and I think the the key difference with Web three is we're now considering um, you know how how value can be split equitably between all stakeholders, that being users mm-hmm. included primarily, not just investors yeah. and team, but the users and and stakeholders down the line. Um, and yeah. I think that. That is the key to this this whole movement is that you don't have um, the value capture um, you know by by the end protocol, but you can share it throughout the stack um, with with all of the the involved parties. Um, yeah, so I think no, that's, agreed. And 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 what I'm hearing from you is like at this stage, you guys, it's like it's it's R and D. It's not necessarily a startup. Even it's a it's a it's a research and development. You know, cooperative and sure, it's like you you look and maybe there's opportunities to to um, create something and users value that and they use it and they cycle back funds, but those funds would eventually are are meant to be reinvested in continuing the R and D, not necessarily you know providing uh, a bigger upside for some future liquidation event. Right. And I, and I think that's the the real value proposition of tokenization in general is that we can um, provide a uh, an accounting system for something other than financial return. And I think that's that's one of the biggest failings of you know our one dimensional financial system is that everything boils down to the bottom dollar, and things that aren't accounted for in either profits or or losses are are kind of externalized. Things like you know, the, the social dynamics or the environmental dynamics can get externalized and they don't show on the balance sheet. So that can just happen. But with tokens, we can start to account for uh, different um, ecological services or social services or uh, stakeholder inclusion and actually have a way to balance that against just the purely financial uh, profit or, lo- or loss, which I think drives a lot of uh, traditional business models. Well, so let me ask a provocative question there. Um, can you, is quantification and uh, like, is the financialization, monetization, or tokenization of something that has intrinsic value the most effective way to have it be considered? Yeah, I, I think ultimately it, that's a very difficult question to answer because uh, like reductionism is, is not the way to, to complex systems analysis, but we do need to figure out a holistic way to get a better picture of this and, and reducing that in complexity to a single metric will, will always fail. Uh, and I think we see that in, um, you know, in oh, what's good, good, Goodhart's law, is it? Whatever is measured uh, will become optimized for and defeat the point of the measure um, in the first place. So like um, engagements on social media, as soon as you um, design, uh, you know, these, these systems to get a like, then you're going to optimize for behavior like clicker and so on and so forth. So it's, it's very difficult to reduce to one measure. Um, but I think we need to expand our, our, um, the metrics that we account for, not saying that any any one measure is the important one, but having a, a richer uh, field of of 
sensing in terms of what kind of uh, benefits are we delivering to these ecosystems, what kind of damages are we delivering to these ecosystems, and what kind of balance works uh, moving forward. So I, I think it's it's about holism versus reductionism, um, and it's not about right. quantification, but it is about getting a better picture of of how we deliver value and take away value from from various ecosystems that we exist. I mean, I think oftentimes my one way that I consider that sort of provocative question, which is, you know, is what's the right relationship between holism and reductionism? What's the right re relationship between sort of quality and quantity? Um, you know, I, I sort of think of, you know, I've got, I've got two kids, um, you know, me checking their temperature and getting a quantified number does not in any way undermine my ability to sort of like love them as a whole being. Right. And I think, you know, and I think there is a, sort of like overreaction to reductionism, which is understandable from sort of like, the, like maybe some of the more um, heartfelt philosophers among us around like, how could we like, you know, quantifying soil health, you know, we get this a lot. Sometimes I think the biggest threat to region network is actually the most, the best meaning people <laughs> who want to see a more beautiful world and, you know, they're sort of like, but we can't quantify everything. And we, you know, you're just reducing it. You're just doing the same thing. And it's like, well, it, I don't know. Our, does creating a interface to increase the sense-making capability of a community around the health of the, the living systems that keep them alive, is that reductionism or is that just an up-leveling of capacity? And, is, right. you know, is there an element of reholing and reconnecting to a wholeness that you know that that quantification can can do and that's sort of what i heard in your answer as well is is you know it isn't that we're just trying to reduce something it's that we're trying to get the right quantitative information to the right place at the right time in order for there to be a relationship and that's right. sort of at the end of the day that's what it's all about right and and I think that's the 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 power and the uh, deficiency of markets is that uh, price price is an aggregated um, measure, um, but it's only a one dimensional measure. And I think we can we can increase the the dimensionality of that um, and and get a much bigger uh, better understanding of the the externalities that we're imposing on our on our natural systems. Um, there's a quote by Donella Meadows that um, that I always come to uh, regarding kind of quantification. I mean, she says, no one can define or measure justice, democracy, security, freedom, truth, or love. No one can define or measure any value. But if no one speaks up for them, if systems aren't designed to produce them, if we don't speak about them and point toward their existence or absence, they will cease to exist. So it's about, it's about not necessarily quantifying to reduce, but quantifying to, to, uh, capture and signal and and show that we value these things and i i don't think that needs to be reductionist of course it depends what you do with that measure 
Um, if you take that temperature of your son and see that it's too high and say, oh, you're sick, I'm not going to touch you, you know, there's, there's uh, a, an issue there of the way that you're treating your son based on the quantification of that, of that data. But there's, there's other ways that, um, that you can react to that. You know, there are appropriate ways to react and there are inappropriate ways to react, in my opinion. And it's very contextual yeah. and, and depending on the, um, the humans that are in this system. Yeah, definitely. It sort of makes me think of um, some of Nora Bateson's work on warm data. Um, I don't yeah. know if you've seen some of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's good. Good. Sort of reconnecting the numbers to what they actually mean, and Precise. making sure that that's that that that's what's happening actually. Um, right. And 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 that's to me that that's a you know in a way technically speaking that's only really possible with Web three. Because you're, that's where, you know, a piece of data is not just a piece of data, it's related. It has, the, the, a community is choosing to have some level of consensus around a few key pieces of how, you know, sort of the metadata, what it's related to, where it came right. from, you know, who issued it, what the, you know, what, what's the story of this bit, not just yeah. this is a bit. Definitely. And I think that that ties right into our idea of the the cyber physical commons um, and computer aided governance. I'm not sure if you saw the piece on computer aided governance, but CADCAD is that is that tool. Um, and I, I've I've uh, read about warm data. I don't know. I haven't heard of any particular like architectures that they are suggesting to to make use of warm data. Um, but I no, think I don't, CAD, I don't I don't think it's gotten to that. Okay, cool. Because I I I think CADCAD will play that role in, in the cyber physical commons at least, because this is kind of the a digital twin of the economy. So a digital, do you know about digital twins? Should I? Mm -hmm. so um, like, but but I, I think it's a useful thing maybe to give a quick introduction, but yeah. Yeah. So, so complex systems, um, you know, when they, when they engineer, for example, uh, an airplane engine, um, those, those parts have a digital twin. So the airplane takes a 12 hour flight from um, London to Bangkok, well, the digital twin of that engine also takes a 12-hour flight. And at the end of that flight, they compare, you know, the, the readout of the real engine with the readout of the digital twin. And if there are any differences, that's a, a, a sign to the engineer and, and the mechanics that we need to look into this. Uh, you know, the simulation says it should be at, you know, 200 degrees and it's actually at 300. Oh, maybe there's an issue here we should look into. So a digital twin is basically like a, a feedback loop. Um, between a simulation and, and the real world environment that they can now analyze, you know, what may be going wrong or, or where a problem may be existing. Um, so with CADCAD, we can now create a digital twin of an economy. So you could have, you know, a, a local currency system, for example, running in Kenya, and all these agents are interacting. And at the same time, you could have a digital twin of that economy uh, with all of these agents interacting. And you can compare and contrast, you can feed in real world data uh, to that model and see um, where where exactly are the issues here, or where are the um, you know where are the failing points that we need to address in this socioeconomic system, uh, and how can we you know make sure that we are serving the needs of the people in this community? Um, so I think mm -hmm. warm warm data really comes into it there because you have this rich temporal data stream of you know agent interactions, and that may not just be buying and selling; it may also be voting. It may also be regenerating ecosystems. You know, depending on the the um, nature of the network we're we're analyzing, um, and be able to feed that information back in so that we can have 
um, informed decision making. Let's say, what if we raise our tax rate to 40%? Run it in the simulation and say, well, hey, we're raising the tax rate to 40%. What are all the agents going to do? You can kind of see that uh, uh, in a data model that respects complexity before you launch it in a real world system and realize that that currency is going to hyperinflate or collapse or, or you know, whatever uh, may, may come out of that. So it's a really interesting new opportunity to get um, kind of predictive analysis, not predictions, but, um, you know, we, and we do this all the time. We do this with flight networks. Um, you know, there's, there's an insane amount of information going on with, um, you know, global flight traffic. Um, and all of that goes through incredibly uh, detailed computation and it's, and it's basically delivered to the human agent in an understandable way such that they can exert uh, influence over that network without needing to understand every single complex detail that's, that's going on in, in global flight traffic around the world. Yeah, yeah. And so CADCAD is essentially just agent, um, agent-based economic modeling uh, interface for designing uh, and testing token schemes, essentially. And, and you're saying it also you can you know use it in larger non-token scenarios. Like you could use CAD CAD to to model, you know, the U.S. economy or something if you wanted to. Um, you it would be very difficult to model um, a U the U.S. economy or any you know cash-based economy um, because there aren't uh, those those data streams to to provide that good information. Actually, a lot of this comes down to um, in engineering, you need uh, invariance, you need constraints. And all of our engineering, all of our good engineering relies on constraints. So like electrical engineering, you have V equals IR. Civil engineering, you have F equals MA. You have E equals MC squared. This is how we can design skyscrapers um, that don't just collapse, you know, because you have some fundamental invariant that the system relies on, on which you can like base higher order mathematics and, and tools and techniques and so on. Um, in in the, the designs we've been working on, the invariant actually comes in through the bonding curve. Uh, so we create, and we haven't spoken much about uh, token bonding curves, so um, I don't know if the, the math is the right place to introduce this, but there is some invariant between supply and reserve. Um, do you know about bonding curves? Actually, there's one going on in the, in the Cosmos ecosystem through IXO. I don't know if you've uh, looked into the one, the work that Sean Conway has been doing um, they call it cosmic bonding. Yeah, no, well, I was there at the hackathon that they first, that, that he and Simply VC were first working on that. And actually, I'm going to have Sean on uh, in two weeks to nice. chat about, about the work that they've been doing. So I've been, um, I don't think any of it, they haven't been sharing it so much yet because it's not done yet. But I'm very excited that there's going to be a, you know, open source module that IXO has been leading and, uh, Interchain Foundation supported and Block Science been working on so and and I think Simply VC has been doing a bunch of the work there as well so I'm really excited about that they're all um, yeah all friends and colleagues so it's exciting to see that move yeah no I'd love you I'd love for you to dig in a little bit to sort of augmented bonding curve work um, I'm always keen to understand more I, I admit I don't completely grok the uh, math behind it, I think, yet. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that I grok the math behind it either. There's, I've realized I exist on some layers and I don't need to go all the way down <laughs> to, yeah, totally. to, to grasp that. But um, I, I can also get to a point that I'm comfortable that I know what's going on without necessarily being able to reproduce all the math myself. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah. The, the, the bonding curve, I think, offers um, a solution to one of the biggest problems in the crypto space. Um, and um, in most tokens today, you have very, very thin order books. So aside from maybe a half dozen or a dozen tokens that have decent trading volume, most of the tokens out there are open to uh, pump and dump attacks and extreme volatility because if you have thin order books, so in other words, um, I guess a bit of explanation on, on market systems. Exchanges are where buyers and sellers go to facilitate transactions. So if I want to sell a token for $10 and you want to buy a token for $10, then we are matched on an exchange and the deal goes through from me to you or you to me, depending who's buying and selling. Uh, with a bonding curve, we now have a one-sided market. So you have a smart contract um, that mints or burns tokens according to the collateral put in or taken out. So I put DAI or dollars into the smart contract. It mints tokens and, and sends them to me. When I want to sell those tokens, I send those tokens back to the smart contract where they're burned and the collateral is returned to me. So we now have a, a one-sided market. Um, and this, I, I think, is going to revolutionize the, the, the crypto space. And I mean, you, you see this playing out through Uniswap or, or Balancer or Bancor. Like, there's a lot of different um, kind of liquidity pools, which is, is essentially what the, the bonding curve is in a way. Um, but what the bonding curve really offers is, a, is an invariant uh, for these economic, um, economic systems moving forward. So you have some uh, guaranteed ratio between supply and reserve. So you say for every dollar that's put in, there are two tokens generated. Or I mean, you, you, that's a linear bonding curve. You can also get a little more sophisticated. You can put a curve in there. Um, so you can you know, incentivize certain types of behavior over others. Um, but once you have that invariant, you have um, uh, a, a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A stable uh, foundation for higher level mathematics to rest on. It's the invariant that makes it a stable system. Um, and essentially, like the way Zargam explains it that I, that I really like, it's designing economic space. Um, and, and when you design economic space, you can now have predictable behavior of the agents in that space because you know they can't leave that surface. So um, what, is a, what is a good... Um, Okay, three-dimensional three space. If you have three-dimensional space, it's just empty space. Anything can happen. But as soon as you reduce the dimensionality of that and you say, you know, there's a certain invariant for life to evolve. So life evolved on the surface of the earth, right? Life didn't evolve in, a, in, a, in the middle of nothing in space. It evolved on the surface of the earth because you have an invariant. The invariant is at any point on the, top of, on the surface of the earth, you're equidistant to the, the equator. So now you reduce the dimensionality of, of free space and now resources were able to like start, um, you know, aggregating on the surface of the planet. We had single-celled life, multi-celled life and evolving up to where we are now. If you didn't have that reduction of dimensionality, then it is very unlikely that life would just start to exist in outer space. So as soon as you introduce an invariant, you, you allow for conditions of 
um, interaction and and predictable predictability, I guess. So if you create um, uh, an economic space through this invariant of the bonding curve, you can say, well, I don't know what agents in the system will do, but I know that they will be on this surface as we've defined it. They could be over here, they could be over here, but they are somewhere on this space. And now we can start to do higher level um, engineering design and mathematical design, knowing that they're at least somewhere on that uh, space. And that's the, the, the bonding curve, I guess, I went a little bit more mathematical with it than, than I normally do, but um, speaking of invariance and kind of engineering rigor, uh, the bonding curve is, is where that, that starts, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, invariance is a, math, a geeky mathematical way to talk about essentially like uh, liberating structure is another way to talk about it or uh, design parameter. You know, it's a parameter. It's something that is that creates a boundary that, you know, creates a container that within which you can, you know, do certain things. Yeah. So right. like gravity is an invariant in it. Right. And, uh, and the rotating, you know, if it's just to expand that for our listeners, the, the, the metaphor that you're inviting here, you know, so you have gravity, you have the moon, uh, you have tidal flow, you know, you have, you have these particular parameters or invariants that create that created the conditions for life to arise, you know, and, and in that way, what I'm hearing you say is you can consider, you know, the, the bonding curve an optional invariant to, to, to impose on to a token economy so that certain conditions arise and behavior, like user behavior then follows a pattern, which can be sort of, you know, logically thought about and modeled and, and some other things. And that, that pattern, you can like set the parameters of that and then like get it going. And obviously you could also have some governance control over that foundational um, invariant, the word uh, being used here. So that foundational parameter is the, what I would call it. And, um, and then so you get going. So, so you were talking about, let's, now let's describe what that invariant or, or parameter is, or what they are, there's probably plural, there's probably multiple that sort of come together to, to form that. Can you describe that just a little bit um, more? Because you were talking about, you know, it's, it's about the exchange rate. You, you get a token in, you get X tokens out, and then in order to get those, you know, if you, if you want to get your original investment back, you can, et cetera, you know, um, land us a little bit more deeply and is there an example of one of these that's that's out in the wild yet or not quite um there there are a few um there's a couple on on mainnet um i mean outside of the the automated market makers so there's i mean as with any like new technology i think the definitions of these things are still evolving so bancor is is one example of a, a bonding curve type mechanism uniswap is similar um, Balancer is kind of a, a multi-dimensional Uniswap um, molecule catalyst launched a bonding curve for actually fundraising um, psilocybin uh, research for, for depression at the University of Toronto, which was really interesting. So there's a number of bonding curves that are, that are out there right now. Um, and I think we're still only verging on the, the beginning of uh, our understanding of these, these systems. So basically, it's, the bonding curve is any way uh, or any two... Um, values in a system related uh, reduced in dimensionality. So you're, you're now on a curve. So 
Um, this could be financial in that you put money in, you get tokens out. Um, now you belong to this, this cyber physical commons, this community that is, um, you know, has this local token. You could also use a bonding curve to relate to things like um, upload uh, volume to download volume in a BitTorrent network. So, I mean, I, I think the, uh, the free rider problem is very clear in, in BitTorrent networks. You know, you have a lot of people that are willing to download, but very few willing to upload. Um, and you have issues there where, you know, the, the people who are uploading, um, you know, are, are spending a lot of uh, money and data to provide a service to all of these, these people who are just basically taking from the system. So with a bonding curve, you could say, hey, look, you can only download this if you upload this and, and plot that on a, on a curve. So you could have, you know, basically a, ingrained um, mechanism to um, relate those two values in some way or um, you know in, in I think there are non-financial applications of the bonding curve that are that are still um, you know out there to be discovered and, and use cases. Um, but you, you had a separate question there um, I think a, a good analogy for this is we can now design uh, economic worlds when we, we we have physical worlds and I mean in the physical world there are certain invariants that you know we can't really control um, but they also um, you know build stability in our world the, the reason this table doesn't fall down is because you know gravity is constant if gravity was changing every 10 minutes um, you know my house wouldn't stand my table wouldn't wouldn't stand up and in a lot of crypto experiments today I think without invariance um, you can you can come in and you can exert a certain force and break these systems. And that's, I think, a vulnerability of a lot of, of crypto systems today. But when we, when we get down the ability to create invariance in these token economies, we will create stable economic space. And when you think about architecting economic space, you can draw some parallels to you know, architecting physical space. Um, there was a time that the corridor was first invented, you know, before, before corridors, you know, you just had massive open rooms and people milled about and maybe people went over to the corner and maybe people walked up to the throne. But once you developed a corridor, you're kind of guiding human behavior. You're able to say, um, you know, this is, and I mean, that's not necessarily intuitive. Someone still may just go in a circle in the corridor, but you know, social norms and behavioral norms will uh, you know, allow people to move through the corridor to the end of the hall, um, which is where the architect wants them to go. Now we can be economic ar architects. We can create an economic corridor in the same way that we can create a physical corridor. And we're not saying people have to move through that corridor how we plan, but you're, you're providing some kind of environmental cue that this is the direction to go. Um, and if you think about that more broadly, we can create... Um, uh, a great an incentive gradient. Um, if you are on top of the hill, you are, um, let's in the case of Regen Network, you are incurring a lot of uh, carbon costs. I mean, that's expensive to do. You can do it, but you're going up the hill. You're, you're, you're paying to do that. Um, more people will be likely to go down into the valley because it's, you're incentivized to be in the valley. You're, you're, if you cut your carbon, you are um, down here on the incentive gradient. And the people that are up here, you're not stopping them from um, you know, polluting, but you are charging them to do so. And those costs are uh, brought to the people that are in the, the economic valley. So you're kind of creating this like economic topology. And you're saying to people, you, know, you have maximum freedom to go wherever you want on this economic topology. But if you want to go up that hill, 
it's going to cost you more and you are going to be subsidizing the people who are down here in the valley who are who are cutting their co2 footprint for example um, so i think that's an interesting um, analogy of the new kinds of economic spaces we're able to design uh, with with these kinds of invariants yeah it's exciting um it's 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 super exciting and i think um yeah i'm interested to see how the, the, this sort of bundle of um conviction voting uh bonding curves um quadratic voting quadratic funding you know there's this sort of like set of emerging really interesting ways of architecting um you know the behavior of agents in a system um, obviously, you know, with the caveat that you want the users to be able to govern the, the choice to both participate in the system and to upgrade the system that they're participating in. If, you know, right. and if, and if you're a user and you, you find you can't upgrade it or you're, you're in the minority who, you know, the majority doesn't want it, to, then you exit and, you know, you you make your change somewhere else or, or what have you. And so that's, right. you know, um, it's, it's, it's exciting. And I'm very excited to start to um, engage and bringing some, you know, we've sort of had our heads down in, in what we've had our heads down in, which is kind of more like on one side, it's the science side of things, you know, actually just the science, how do you create a rigorous, um, um, attestation about ecological state to, to you know what does that look like just like practically not in the like fantasy techno determinism land where there's some binary bullion like this happened or that happened which is not how it works you know it's a probabilistic you know sort of complex comparative you're bringing in all this information and you're stacking it into you know building kind of you know yeah i mean i, I guess in a way the digital twin of of ecological state that people can look at and say, yeah, that does represent the reality in that particular place on earth. So we're working a lot on that on the science side. And then just like on the, you know, sort of like layer one, how do you, um, how do you make sure that users can govern the, the tools that are being deployed in order to make trust? And I'm very excited that this sort of parallel trend has happened where people who weren't as persnickety as myself and our team about like but no we need to be able to govern the layer one we can't just have somebody just not can't just run on some deterministic thing it's some you know that doesn't make any sense at all you know um that the people who are less like a little bit more relaxed about that in the short term have sprinted ahead and started building these building blocks and are we're starting to see the feedback when it works when it doesn't how to deploy it and um, it's very exciting it's it feels like there's you know, we're just about to sort of crescendo into a, a new, like move up an octave is what it feels yeah. like. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I completely agree that a lot of these, um, these, these tools are still nascent, you know, they're, they're not quite there yet. And I, I think the, rabbit, uh, the, the common stack itself has, you know, some very interesting research directions, but each of these tools on their own is, is quite a rabbit hole. You know, the, the yeah. mathematics of the bonding <laughs> curve is a lot, um, you know, then, imagining conviction voting, how these things come together 
in, in an ecosystem where we can make sure that, that they're being developed in the interest of all stakeholders. You know, there's, there's a, such a uh, cross-disciplinary, um, you know, endeavor and, and it's a massive project, you know, it's, it's not anything that any one team can do. Um, and I think that's, um, another hope of the common stack is to bring people into, you know, the kind of engineering, uh, token engineering design, because we, we can't do it all. We, we don't want to do it all. There are so many different um, contexts and use cases and, and tools, but we just want to say, hey, here's an interoperable um, framework and a modular framework for design. And, and all, a lot of that comes down to, um, you know, the engineering design. Designing a part isn't necessarily hard, but designing a system composed of multiple different parts is much more difficult. You know, you can build mm -hmm. a screw and say, hey, this is a screw, but as soon as you put that screw into, you know, an I-beam and that I-beam into a bridge, then, you know, it, the, the um, engineering looks at the, the bounds of the system and how, where the, the bound of that part ends and the next part begins is usually where it breaks. So this is why we need to be really careful with the way we design these systems to be interoperable and modular um, and, and being able to, um, to move forward so that, you know, we're all able to build on a lot of, a lot of the other work that's been done. We're really excited to, to see that happening more and more in the space. Um, yep. And actually, I, I wanted to, to backtrack to the bonding curve for a sec, because I think I, I got a little um, high level on, the, on the, um, you know, the theoretical, and I think there's something much more tangible um, in terms of making uh, the bonding curve a useful uh, use tool. And actually, it's a point you brought up earlier about local currencies, which I realized I had a bunch in my wallet as well. These are um, the Bangla Pesa, Lindy Pesa. Um, the first version of, of Will's uh, community inc inclusion currencies. Um, and you mentioned uh, the, the Berkshires, you know, the unfortunate thing was that they don't seem to be that much used, even though it's a, a great thought experiment. There's a lot of excitement around it, but there's, there's very little, I guess, like tangible um, uh, use. And I think the, the biggest downside of all these local currencies is they're basically islands. If you're, if you're, on the island, it, it can be useful in your community, but as soon as you leave that community, it has no uh, value to anyone else. There's no liquidity. There's no interoperability between these different currency systems. Yeah, which is the Bancor vision, is to right. create the liquidity between the systems. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's the promise of, of the bonding curve, is that there is some sort of like on-chain collateral um, that gives, that allows these currencies to relate to each other. So, you know, if you have the Bangla Pesa and the Lindy Pesa, well, well, as soon as you leave either of those communities, what is the value of that, of that currency? As soon as you have an on-chain verifiable collateral pool, you can always trade that back to fiat or to another local currency. And ultimately, it serves as the bridge between all these islands of local currency. And I think that's when we'll see um, that the real benefits of alternative currency systems come about is when you have bridges between all of these islands um, and, and interoperability. Yep, agreed. And, I, I, and I, there's different ways. It's interesting that, that people are approaching that in different ways. Um, bonding curves and liquidity pools are one part of that. And then in the Cosmos world, it's sort of like IBC becomes the you know, the bridge and then each, you know, each sovereign chain can kind of think about exchange rates and, you know, you can have uh, hubs and liquidity pools and contracts and, you know, um, collateralized different agreements and all sorts of things. So it's, 
you know, and I don't really know how that all lives in the polka dot world, to be honest. I don't know how people are conceptualizing, but, um, or I have a vague idea, but I don't really know. And then you have the hollow chain people and that yeah. is even more confusing to me how that actually <laughs> would work. But. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to see all of the different, um, you know, directions these explorations are, are taking shape and, um, it, it'll be really exciting to see over the coming years, as you say, like I've, I've dipped my toes into a lot of these ecosystems and often the, the technical um, details are, are a bit beyond me, but I think there are so many exciting areas of exploration um, and, and a lot of it around, around the same, you know, mutual credit um, in the case of, of uh, Holochain. And I also don't have enough, uh, knowledge about the polka dot ecosystem. I've got some more research to do, but I think that um, you know the the, the lateral uh, explorations across these various projects, and then figuring out where you want to to dive deep is a you know um, a key decision for each person in the in the ecosystem right right now. But I think there's so much to learn across projects. Um, but then you also need to specialize in in one to you know really make an impact and and dive in on. Uh, one area that we can make a difference. I would really love a comparative, like to see, and I think some work has started happening this. And I think you guys did a good job at the beginning of kind of, you know, saying, okay, here's the tools that are needed. Here's the pattern, the pattern level. And here's the framework to think about it agnostic of what, you know, how, how you code it up, um, which is great. Um, and I would love to see at some point just sort of like a, you know, a cool interactive network topology and, you know, uh, that you can sort of like go in a couple layers and zoom back out and like see the whole, all the innovation taking place, how that's related, um, like mutual credit, who's work, working on mutual credit. There's different communities of people, you know, the hollow community has done some great work there. Um, but then there's also like, like we were noting earlier, there's great, like you don't even need a, you know, especially in mutual credit, there's not necessarily a need for blockchain or, or, or consensus if you have trust in a, in, in a, a admin person. Um, I've been trying to wrap my head around, it seems like mutual credit is a very hard nut to crack in the yeah. blockchain world. Uh, it's, um, I haven't seen any good solutions yet. Really? Yeah, T Trust Lines just launched uh, not too long ago, which is a, a really, really exciting tech stack. Um, I, I haven't seen a lot of uh, uptake, I guess, in terms of use. Um, and again, that's like pure mutual credit is, is really difficult, I think. And this I've spoken with Will a little bit about it. Um, you know, it needs to be backed by something. Uh, and in Holochain, that's, that's compute. So uh, there's, you know, there's always something underlying that, which, which makes sense in a digital medium. Um, and Will's, Will's opinion of it, you know, is we, we need a, a bunch of different currency systems, but all of those currencies need to be backed, you know, by something, whether it's the, the local shepherd backing the currency with goats or, you know, the local Canadian tire backing Canadian tire money with, with tires, you know, there's, there's always some, uh, asset that is, that is redeemable for this currency and pure mutual credit is a really tricky play, uh, because they're, in, in the purest sense, it's just credit between two people without uh, necessarily the, the asset backing that. Um, but I, I think there's, there's... Well, the asset that's backing it is the labor. It's the debt. 
right? It's, it's that you are agreeing that you're in debt. And so what's backing it is your agreement that you'll fulfill your debt. Right. I mean, I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to talk to, to Will about this. You should have Will on, definitely. I'd love to have Will on, yeah. I, I don't know that it... I, I, I'm not convinced that in a strict sense, although I'm excited, it's like on one hand, I'm very excited about, for instance, you know, Region Network, the entire impulse of the vision was to have living capital-backed currency. And the way that I actually see that happening is by creating like local and bioregional um, living capital sort of currency systems, probably using something like a bonding curve and, and a couple of other tools that's governed um, and essentially has like a global exchange rate that's, that's sort of programmatically or algorithmically related to the ecological health index. And those can then get aggregated into a sort of like a meta currency that, you know, essentially represents, you know, the health of the living system. And, that, and then you can start to price that in. Okay. So we're sort of like, building blocks and on the way there we got to do go to market and get some carbon credits and we got to do this and we got to do that we got to kind of like piece it all together so that there's users and stuff happening okay we're we're moving that said you know backing things isn't the only way to build trust and what's really important is that people trust the currency right and backing is one way that people have traditionally and and that we can design for people to have trust and there are other ways such as coercion coercive power yeah. like pure brute force that's another way yeah <laughs> seems to work in the world today um you know and, and probably shared belief systems and like tightly knit like cultural coherence is another way you can back something um so anyway there's just choices I guess is what I'm saying is, um, mm. and a logical, it's a logical choice to back things. With, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this is also like a social and behavioral evolution as, as well. Like, um, you know, the democratization of currency creation in, in the beginning, you know, there's, there's a lot of mistrust and, and therefore it's going to be slow, I think off the uptake, but you know, this was probably the same thing that happened when, uh, with the, the, um, democratization of the printing press. You know, the first books that came out were probably a joke. Like, like they probably had poor binding, and they were writing about you know things that weren't really relevant. And you know, the, the 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 people who were printing the Bibles were looking at these first books and being like, "Man, what a joke! You think you guys are ever gonna like this is ever gonna take off? Like, the Bible is obviously the book. Like, everyone's just gonna buy the book. No one's gonna buy all these like." trashy uh, first first generation books that that were barely intelligible but now i mean look at the look at the state that we're in now we've got you know literature um that that i think it's a it's an evolutionary process once you democratize there's there's a period where you need to figure out what this is actually useful for and how to use it properly um and then you know the kind of acceptance of these things comes along with that um and and we usher in a new um, a new future that we, it's even hard to tell at this point in time, what, what that means. Hard to tell, but I think you're right. And it's, I think the closest analogy to our current, like historic, the current historical epoch is the, you know, the, um, invention and spread of the printing press through Europe. And it's important to note that that catalyzed the reformation and the, bloodiest 
most fragmented, horrendous period in European history. And um, I think we're in similar times. I, I mean, I hope it doesn't need to be quite that um, bloody, but it's certainly, I think we're feeling the destabilization of, um, and, you know, we're working on the Web 3, but that's sort of like just a better printing press. Web 2, Web 1, it's just web. It's web. And, you know, we saw the intrinsic issues with, from a Web 2 approach and VC and, and you know, public market um, owned platforms and the meaning, the sense making challenges that that brings up and the incentives and all of that stuff. Like we're in the middle of it. It's like yeah. how, how people learn and how people get information is changing as radically as it did when all of a sudden there were books and they weren't the Bible and you could read a book that wasn't the Bible that somebody over there wrote about what they thought, you know, that was a, that was a big move. And I think we're in the middle of another really big move in a similar sort of way. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that the potential it can unlock is, is massive. But as you say, that the process from here to there is not just a, you know, a steady line of, of progress. I think there's technological development. There are ups and there are downs and there are bumps. And it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. And uh, I mean, we're, we're also playing this out on a global scale of, you know, uh, ecological collapse and climate change. And, you know, there are all sorts of external pressures on this process as well that may trigger, uh, you know, more difficulties or, or at, at the same time, more opportunities. Um, you know, since COVID started, I haven't, I've heard, you know, people asking questions that make this work far more relevant. Uh, and even just a couple months ago, I would never have expected those questions to, to be asked, you know, around, universal basic income or, you know, um, fair distribution of resources, I think in the status quo uh, of the world just up to a couple months ago, it was a lot of these things were unquestioned. Um, and now we are kind of find ourselves in, in, in great times of crisis, we also have great opportunity. Um, and how we choose to move forward through that, I think is the, is the place that we're at right now. Yeah. yeah. And, and we've been procrastinating some changes that are being forced by some deadlines so right right change will happen whether we you know whether it turns into the you know <laughs> whether it goes the way we hope or not so we better just you know now it's time to just do it i do think we're in yeah we've got 10 or 20 years now that are just kind of like the you know, how, how we behave as humans and, and is going to ripple, you know, like small changes in this moment of time create really big changes, like completely different historical scenarios are unfolding out there, depending on how things happen. And again, like the circle back, that's why social coordination technology mm -hmm. is so key because unlocking the collective intelligence and improving sense-making and up-leveling our ability to cooperate and engage with complexity and um, evolve a human society that's, you know, in my language, that's regenerative, that, that, you know, our whole North Star is really around this human species stepping up into a role as a, as a keystone species in planetary ecology where we're, where, where, 
the outcome of our existence is biodiversity and a thriving biosphere. You know, that's actually, that's just intrinsic. That's intrinsic. That is, you know, to, to, to go back to the language that you were using, you know, that that's in, that becomes an invariant, you know, but the, the things that are needed for our, um, the human economy to, to create planetary regeneration as the natural native outgrowth is just like, that's just how it happens. Right. That's the, that's the goal. That's the North star. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, web three tech and tokenization allows us to begin to design like nature. Um, and I think blockchain up until now gets an undue, I mean, maybe a, a fairly due wrap for being overly financialized. Um, but when we start talking about tokens, not just as money, but tokens as governance, tokens as reputation, tokens as badges, um, now we can start to design um, alternative systems that that act like nature. Um, we don't necessarily have to have centralized systems of, of failure. You know, um, one of the examples I gave uh, for um, community currencies as an economic intervention for COVID, um, you know, our economic system as a centralized issuance system is kind of like a circulatory system. And we're going to be going through all these economic heart attacks. You know, there are going to be liquidity crises. Currency is a flow in the, in the meta organ organism of humanity. Um, it's flowing opposite to goods and services. So you have, uh, you know, services flowing one way, currency flowing the other. But when you have economic shocks, it's like the system having a heart attack and the currency is not able to flow. But if we look at, you know, value transmission systems in nature, like mycelium, um, you actually have kind of like overlapping uh, multi um, dimensional networks of value. So mushrooms don't have heart attacks. You know, if you can layer multiple um, community currencies over top of each other that don't have, you know, the centralized issuance and, and liquidity crises, we will be able to design much more um, resilient systems in the face of uh, external shocks like pandemics or climate change or, or anything else. And I think that's yeah. the, the opportunity that we're really verging on is being able to design um, our, our, our economic and governance systems as we see those systems existing in nature um, and, and really learning from those, um, from those patterns and moving forward into an age where we can, um, who knows what's possible. Who knows what's possible? Planetary regeneration. Um, um, yeah. Wow, there's so many, I mean, we, I just have, a, you know, about five minutes left. There's so many places that I still want to go with the conversation. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's a good, maybe if you could leave us with, uh, what are you reading right now? Um, what are you, when, what's inspiring you right now? What, what, what has your interest and attention? Um, a lot of my research lately has been in um, trying to translate some of these crypto topics into existing, um, you know, financial um, mechanisms that, that people can understand. So doing some um, reading on, you know, bonds, convertible bonds, um, stocks, and, and it's really helped me to examine um, legacy financial systems through the context of um, token ecosystems um, and mm -hmm. really, really wondering, you know, um, like company stocks are kind of like, you know, allowing Apple to create their own token. Um, and then you say, well, 
what are like stock buybacks? It's like, okay, well, a stock buyback is actually just like a, uh, the founders pumping and dumping their own token for, for, you know, creating value in this ecosystem and being able to analyze kind of the existing financial system through um, the models that we're now developing in, in token ecosystems. You really see some of the, the strange things that exist in our, in our, currency creation systems and you know governments and corporations are currently the two largest kind of like institutions that exist uh, in the world that we you know as individuals minding climate change yes i can make individual choices but really the 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 change is going to come um, when a yeah. government mandates something or when a when a corporation and i and i started thinking like why why do they have all this power and it's it's because they are the ones that are able to create these currency ecosystems. And now we can give that power to the community as well through uh, these, you know, Web3 tools and allow them to, you know, be on the same playing field. We can, we can give the commons a, um, a leg up in their, you know, in kind of the, the, the civic, public, um, private or corporate, you know, uh, triad. We can, we can put the commons on an on a even playing field with these other uh, forms yeah. of, of institutional Love it. The power. civic commons. Yeah. 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 And, and I, that's a good, that's a great, that's a cool model. It's really cool mental model to think about that triad and the Im- imbalance there that's happened um, yeah. recently. Yeah. It's cool. Cool. Well, um, thank you so much for, um, for hopping on. It's been a fantastic conversation. Let's do it again soon. Definitely, definitely, and I think there's there's more we can uh, riff on. Um, I I still have so many questions about Regen Network that uh, you know I I know I went on a couple of tangents today, so I, I definitely want to pick your brain more. I know you guys are really pushing for it. I actually um just shared shared uh, you guys on my Facebook page. You got a lot of positive uh, feedback from some of my. Uh, uh, friends who are interested in, in what I'm doing, but it's still, again, kind of a, a level too theoretical, you know, so I think Regen Network is a really great, uh, um, you know, rallying flag for the people who don't necessarily want to dive into the crypto economics, but they understand the power of, um, you know, incentivizing a, a regenerative planet and uh, keep up the good work. You guys are on a roll. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much.